Well, let me tell you a little bit about what we're going to be doing uh, today and in the coming weeks. It's going to be a, a lot more informal than a sermon. Um, in fact, if you have a question, I want you to stop and just grab my attention. Love to be able to interact with you. It's going to be a, uh, a it's not going to be sermonic as more as just like a classroom. I guess I should follow John and Ben's um, uh, lead and go down there, but you can't see me if I'm down there, so I won't do that. I'll stay up here. Are you laughing with me or are you laughing at me? That's the question. Um, but let me just tell you a little bit what we're going to do and, and, and give you some plans. This is going to be kind of a state of the union, state of the church as we go through this over the coming weeks because we're going to be going back to fundamentals of the faith. It's going to take us a few months to go through and it goes back to the basic doctrine of who we are and what we believe. Uh, one of the things that is um, uh, a reality is that over the last couple of years, our church has basically doubled. Now, that sounds like a great thing, and uh, I, I'm not into numbers in, in, in terms of church growth, except to say this. That means that about half of the people who were here uh, before, that two years, before two years ago were very well grounded in what Mission Road is about. And over the last two years, it's, it's been maybe difficult to kind of pick up, you know, the distinctives and, and what we are. We do it in, mission, in um, our membership classes. But this is to go back to our foundations. What are the fundamentals? What do we really believe that makes us who we are? Um, and I, I, I want to make no apologies from the very beginning. We're going to go be going back to Christianity 101. And none of this that it's repetitive should really... Um, frustrate any of us who are wanting to grow in the Lord. It should just be great reminders. We're going to be talking about the Bible and the, and the Lord himself, Christology, work of the Holy Spirit, uh, the doctrine of the church, just very basic things. Now, what we're going to do in the future, uh, if you're, if you're uh, let me, how do I say this? Bob, this will be interesting how I phrase this. If you are not yet a member, you should probably come to this class. Because in the future, after we do this, we're going to continue cycling this class over and over with uh, some folks upstairs in, in a couple of classrooms that we have. And going through the fundamentals of the faith class is going to be a prerequisite before you join. And that makes sense to, to know uh, exactly what the church believes and, um, and if you can sign off on that. Let me just say from the very beginning, what we believe is nothing more or less than what the Bible teaches, Lord willing. And if there's any wiggle room on that, we want to be on the, the closer side rather than the further away side. If you ever have questions about that, <clears throat> anything in our doctrinal statement, anything that I ever say, anything that you read, just come and let us know. Our passion as a, the elder overseeing team, the pastoral staff, is to be biblical in all that we do, is to employ a biblical methodology. In other words, everything we do should be traced back to book, chapter, and verse. Even things we do that are outside of book, chapter, and verse still have wisdom principles that govern them. Um, the, the, the big question is, why are we doing this? Why do we need to go back? I am I am more convinced than, than ever that the attack that's on the church today has gotten new traction, new cleats. There are, um, um, I think it's probably the internet that's done it more than anything. Anything that can be bad or attacking uh, of the church instantly gets notoriety. It's, uh, it can be forwarded, it can be tweeted, it can be Facebooked. And so you find out things really quick. Error can spread. Now, also, we're trying to leverage that with, uh, for the gospel, too. Uh, you'll need to know that 
We're meeting as a staff uh, with some folks. Uh, in fact, Seth, you're helping us a lot on this. Really thinking through our, our social media. Let me just say this. Social media is not gonna go away. If you're ever thinking, I remember talking to a guy uh, who said, you know, we just need to fight Facebook. Well, you can fight Facebook, you're gonna lose. So whatever uh, uh, communication mechanism that the world has to disseminate its error, I'd be happy to leverage for the truth. So we're looking at some different ways of doing that. Reason I bring that up is that error is, is flashing on every possible um, avenue uh, almost 24-7. Because of that, it's important that we continually go back to the beginning. I love uh, uh, Vince Lombardi. You guys know the famous story. He, every year, these were professional football players. Every single year, they sat down, and the first thing he did is he got a football, and what did he say? Gentlemen, this is a football. And he started from the beginning. What did John Wooden do? First practice of, of every uh, season, the most winning, uh, most national championships of anyone, uh, coach UCLA, he would sit them down and say, take off your shoes. And he would say, I'm gonna tell you how to put your shoes on and I'm gonna show you how to tie them. Why? Because going back to the beginning ensures that you're doing the things that are beyond foundational appropriately. If those foundational uh, issues are cracked, if they're leaning in the wrong direction, you build a house on a faulty foundation and you're gonna have a leak that Tim's gonna have to come and fix, right, Tim? You would like that, right? That's good for business. So um, what I wanna do is highlight an outline. I wanna go through an outline. And seriously, this is the time, if you wanna have a question, just uh, raise your hand and, and catch my attention and, uh, or yell really loudly because I don't hear very well. Um, so just catch my attention. I wanna go over, um, what's the, the title here, uh, Ginger? Oh my goodness. Uh, these are reasons that we are um, needing to go back to the beginning. Often and always. Why do we need to keep underlining our foundation? The first is what we would call an absentee bibliology. Every generation has to figure out what it really believes about the Bible. Every generation in the church. What do we believe? What do we believe about the Bible? It's not even enough to say, I believe the Bible anymore. I don't know if you saw uh, two, no, it was last week. Maybe it's two weeks ago. Uh, a leading evangelical, uh, a, a very prominent figure in evangelicalism, uh, wrote an article and tweeted it and Facebooked it all over, and it became this massive hot potato for about a week on the fact that he believed that uh, the six days of creation are day ages, not days. Um, I'm very, very uh, strongly convinced that it's six 24-hour days that the Lord created the world. I don't have any trouble with that. I don't need to accommodate for, for time and evolution. It's real simple. Um, God created the world with the appearance of, uh, of age. It's pretty simple. You say, well, it took you know, 400 million light years for the light to go from this source to the earth. And so you know, if he created that star, it needs to have enough time for that light to get there. Why couldn't he create the star and the beam at the same time? He created Adam, he didn't create an embryo. He created trees, he didn't create all acorns. He created the universe mature with appearance of age. There's, that, that's, that's not deceptive, that's just what he did. All to say, I don't think you need to start with science and say, let's figure out how the Bible fits into that. I think we start with the Bible and we see how science fits in with that. And if there's a discrepancy, I can tell you where I'm gonna go every time. And uh, you can call me, I think the biblical word in, in, in 1 Corinthians is foolish. But 
if God, I don't wanna get too far off on this, but if Moses, who wrote Genesis 1 and 2, um, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, from the direct dictate of God, you, you gotta say, where did, where did Moses get all this data? Think about all those conversations that Joseph had and, and uh, Abraham, all that data. Where did he get all of that? That has to be more than oral tradition. Remember in Exodus, he went up on the mountain at least twice with the Lord, probably three times for 40 days each time. What do you think he was doing up there? I think he was getting Genesis uh, and all the data and all the conversations and he was taking some really good notes. I think if God had wanted to say through Moses that he meant he took millions of years to create the planet, I I know Hebrew. I've taught Hebrew. I can read Hebrew. There is plenty of Hebrew language to communicate. I took a long time. But if he says evening and morning day one, evening and morning day two, evening and morning day three, that seems like he meant evening and morning Day one. I mean, maybe I'm foolish, but all to say our bibliology has to dictate everything that we believe. We are Mission Road Bible Church for a reason. And uh, if you're new, if you're wondering what we're about, listen, we are fools, foolish in God's language to believe that this book is true. It's historical. We take it at face value. God said what he meant and meant what he said. Why? Think about this. If if the one who created language and communication, namely God, tried, in quotation mark, to communicate, wouldn't you think he could be clear? That's the great doctrine in Scripture we call the perspicuity of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture. If there's a problem, the problem is not here. The problem is here. The problem could be here. It's going all the way back to the beginning and seeing that what we believe about the Bible really defines everything. And the reason we're going back and doing this is there is fundamentally an absentee bibliology in evangelicalism today. Um, It's left uh, all sorts of... Thoughts, intuition, instinct, psychology, you name it, and it's informed what people think about the church. We want to be as strongly and clearly communicative as possible that we believe the Bible is historically and spiritually true, period. And if, if that's a problem, there are plenty of churches around here where you could go and hear another message. So I'm not wanting us to be arrogant about that, but it's just being humble. If, if God said it, I think we can believe it. So every generation has to define its relationship with the Bible. We want to define ours with a proper biblical hermeneutic. What's a proper biblical hermeneutic? A literal, if you're taking notes or just remember, remember, memorize this, literal, historical, grammatical, contextual. That's, how, that's our hermeneutic. Literal. Bible says what it means, means what it says, can be taken at face value. It includes figurative language. Literal and means regular. We know that the earth rotates, the, the sun doesn't rise and set, but if, if from the rising of the sun to the setting, uh, we sing praise to the Lord, we understand that's metaphorical language. So literal and regular can include that. So literal, historical. We believe that the, the events of the Bible took place exactly, let me say that word again, 
exactly as the Bible portrays them. It is a historically verifiable document. Literal, historical, grammatical. The grammar matters. Every word, every jot and tittle, which is another way of saying every way you dot the I and cross the T, every part of the Bible is inerrant, infallible, and inspired, and we'll take it that way. And uh, then uh, contextual, uh, literal, historical, grammatical, contextual. The first three words, in, uh, if you're in real estate, are what? Location, location, location. First three words of Bible study, context, context, context. If you get off on context, you can be in a lot of trouble. You can make the Bible say almost anything that you want it to say unless you hold to context. We'll study that in the coming weeks as well. Number two, the reason we're gonna go back is we have an emasculated Christology. There's no other way to say it than that. Jesus has been reduced to a blue-eyed wimp, which he probably didn't have blue eyes and he certainly didn't have blonde hair. He was... Jewish, you do know that, right? He was a Jew, a strong Jew. He was a, a, a carpenter. If you look at that word, uh, the, the Greek word for carpenter, it probably leans more toward masonry than woodworking, which would make sense if you've ever been to uh, Nazareth. There's not lots of trees up there. It's probably masonry, woodwork. He's dealing with, with, with stones and wood. Bottom line is, he was a man's man. He wasn't a wimp. Look at, look at him going into uh, uh, opposing crowds. I love it in Mark, uh, is, it, uh, is it 12? Uh, where he's walking, he says, he, goes at, he went ahead of them from Jericho up to Jerusalem. After he said, I'm gonna go up there and suffer, be beaten, scourged, die, and rise from the dead. And he went on ahead of them, and it says they were amazed. Jesus was a man's man, and remember this. We fight for the deity of Christ. We also must fight for his humanity. He was fully, 100% human. For too many men who lack manliness or masculinity, they look other places than the Lord Jesus to define what a real man is. There's a distinct idea that if you pursue Christianity that you're weak and wimpy. The logic goes like this. Virtues like kindness, generosity, gentleness, humility, tenderheartedness, non-retaliation, forgiveness. Those are expressions of weakness. But those are the core values of who Jesus was and is. Once you understand that Jesus had strength under control, that's that's the word for meekness that he says. He, was, he, he calls himself meek. Strength under control. Jesus is, um, is terribly frightening in the book of Revelation when he comes back in his glory. We've emasculated Christ to make him just some... I heard a, a discussion on CNN the other day with some, some pundits and uh, there was one... Seen him on there before. There was a, a priest and another guy who was from a liberal church and a, um, Deepak Chopra um, talking about Jesus. And I, I'm just going to tell you the Jesus they were talking about. I don't know who that is. We have to go back to who the Bible defines Christ to be. That's going to be one of the lessons we're going to look at: is the the person of Christ. Number three reason we need to go back to the beginning is we have a Freudian anthropology. A Freudian anthropology. Freudian anthropology goes back to the idea of tabula rasa. 
Remember that from philosophy? Tabula rasa, you're born with a blank slate. And uh, you have certain desires and uh, id and ego and uh, the, the forces that are alive in you in, um, in, in, that make you who you are. The point is that we've let psychology and Freud or Rogers or Pavlov define what man is and what, what man is and, and what he's like. That's a problem. Those people can't define the nature of the human soul. Isn't it interesting? Psychology, the word psychology comes from the Greek word psuche, psycho, psychology, which is really originally the study of the soul. And now it's become the study of mind. I was in a, um, uh, I don't know if I should tell you this, but, but I will. I had a few majors, a couple majors in, in college. One of them was psychology. And the reason was uh, studying under a man who was the most anti-psychology um, PhD I'd ever, ever uh, met. And his, his whole point was that it's a, it's a moving target. Um, I don't know what DSM level we're up to now. Does anyone even know if it is? Diagnostics and Statistics Manual. What are we, five, Fred? It keeps changing. When I was in college uh, back in the 1980s, early 1980s, um, homosexuality was an aberrant behavior. Now it's an alternative lifestyle. So you see that their Bible continues to change. You know, Fred, can you imagine if we did that with infection? It's not objectifiable. Also, if we let psychology begin dictating what man is like, um, then you begin, um, the solution becomes medical, medical and um, and I'm not anti-medical on everything, but let me tell you this. If sin is not the problem, the gospel will not be the solution. Um, also, if you decide, I don't want to get too far off on this, but it was, I got to study this in college a little bit, and this is the only place I can use it, okay? Uh, if, you, if you say that someone has a chemical imbalance, a norepinephrine or a serotonin or, or a lithium uh, issue, let me tell you a couple things about that. Serotonin and norepinephrine are the chemicals in, in the brain cells. You have these, these tendrils that fire back and forth these, these gaps. The gap's called a synapse. And when, um, when, when they do, they use these, these transmitters, uh, norepinephrine and serotonin. And when you say, well, someone needs more of that to think better or to cure something, that's interesting. But the only way you can tell if they have a problem with that is to take a brain sample, which I've never heard of anyone doing. It's a guess. It's a, it's a best guess. Also, I know someone who was given lithium because they were told but for their psychotic behavior that they needed. They had a lithium uh, deficiency, which makes sense because lithium doesn't occur in the human body, so everyone has a lithium um, the point is, who defines what's right and wrong? What did the people before, 50 years ago, when we even had these diagnoses and these narcotics and these drugs and these, these um, uh, uh, psychosomatic uh, medications, what did they do then? They dealt with the soul spiritually. So our, our anthropology cannot be determined by psychology. We'll get back to that in a moment. It has to be determined by, determined by Scripture, Number four, the reason we need to go back to the beginnings is humanistic soteriology. This is very interesting. Humanistic soteriology says, what, what must a man or woman do to get to heaven? Is it based on human means or is it based on divines? There's only two religions in the world, right? The religion of human achievement and the religion of divine accomplishment. Every religion on the planet 
is human achievement except the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every religion on the planet is what you can do to be better so somehow make it to heaven except the gospel which says, by the way, you can't do anything. You can never be good enough. You can never try hard enough. You can never put enough of your your, uh, past behind you. You can never, ever be good enough. But Christ has given you all the righteousness you would ever need and taken away your sin at the cross. It's the gospel. It's divine achievement, what he has done, not what we can do. And I think that this is the whole um, uh, Calvinism, Arminium debate. This is, this is the pragmatic, seeker-sensitive debate. What does it take to change the human soul? It takes God. And going back to <coughs> what is our salvation dependent on? Humanistic humanism or is it based on, based on divine revelation? Number five, I'm just gonna mention this one because we'll come back to this in a few weeks. Superstitious angelology. Do I really need to talk much about this? I'm telling you, there is, every decade or so, there's this resurgence of this wacky angelology, cherubology. I was, I'm embarrassed to tell you this. I was in a nationally um, franchised Christian bookstore last week. And I saw some angels. They were candles, but they were angels. They were little fat babies with wings, curly hair. Also, if you go back, I get, this has got to be... Um, this has got to be 30 years ago. You guys remember the rage of, called This Present Darkness? Frank Peretti. How many of you guys remember that book? It was, people began de- defining their angelology by that. I read the book, and in the second to last chapter, if you'll remember, it's a book about this, this spiritual warfare. This was the theology of that book. If the guy on earth was praying, then there was an angel and a demon, they were fighting in heaven. When he was praying, the angel would win. When he would stop praying, the angel would lose. Is that, is that our spiritual, is that our angelology? Is that what we believe? It's a superstitious angelology. And you can also put a, a demonology. People don't understand demons. Satan and, and this will be a whole lesson by itself, but Satan and demons do not come to us in horror movies as scary looking things. Second Corinthians chapter 11, they come to us as angels of light. I think they laugh. I think the enemy laughs at the whole horror movie industry with Satan looking all ugly in these horror movies. That's just a silly distraction. Satan comes to church. He comes as an angel of light. He wants to make you think it's the right way when it's not the right way. He's a counterfeiter. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. Superstitious angelology. Number six, have to say this, sensational eschatology. That's the study of the future. Now, I, let me just be clear. We'll come to this. I believe in a literal return of Lord Jesus Christ. I believe in a literal seven-year tribulation, uh, uh, a literal thousand-year reign of Christ, sheep's ghosts at the end. We'll, we'll get to all that uh, probably at Romans chapter 11. But um, when I was in uh, high school, uh, did you guys, were you guys around to see those Thief in the Night movies? Scared me to death. 
I remember going home and just laying out my bed and I was saying, Jesus is going to come back. Jesus is going to come back. I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble, which was true. But it had nothing to do with the, with, with the Lord wooing me to himself because of his greatness and everything about he's going to come back. I'm going to get my head chopped off if, if I'm not a Christian. You know, and the 666 is going to be tattooed on my forehead. And, and uh, listen, we're going to get to eschatology, but when you sensationalize it, I grew up in a day, some of you guys are too young to know this, with a guy called Hal Lindsey, the late great planet Earth, which was, you know, it's going to be like this, and Russia's going to be the devil. And by the way, after his third marriage, his credibility did begin to slip. Um, but it, it was just modernizing all of the, all of the Bible. And, and, and we can't know. We just have to be alert. The people who are alive when that happens, no. Even just uh, uh, look at what's happened in our lifetime. Who would have thought in 1980 that we would be dealing with Islam in the way that we're doing today? Who knows that there's not gonna be another religion? And who knows that the Lord's not gonna come back this afternoon? We just don't know. He says, be faithful and watch. Don't sensationalize it. Don't, don't say, you know, Gog and Magog is now, it used to be Russia and now I heard the, uh, uh, I might have been on TBN the other day uh, and heard a guy saying, it's no, we used to think it was the Gog and Magog were Russia, but now we know it's Syria because it's Islam. Well, just quit guessing. Don't sensationalize it. What do we do? We believe what we believe and we look for the Lord to return and we evangelize people while we wait. Number seven, existential pneumatology. Pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit. Existential, experience. This is the charismatic movement where the Holy Spirit becomes a force and not a God. The Holy Spirit is, a, is an it, not a he, and it's just, you have this experience with the spiritual realities rather than, than uh, worshiping and knowing the Lord Jesus Christ through the person of the Holy Spirit, John 14, John 16, say he will come to make much of me. We'll see this in, John, in Romans 8 here, that the Spirit prays in our, our weakness. That he's, he's a he, he's God, he's not a force. It's not just an experience that we have. Number eight, ecumenical ecclesiology. In other words, we just, let's just blur all the lines and get together and have a promise keeper event and have this, and we won't worry about doctrinal divisions. We'll just get together, hold hands, and sing kumbaya. Well, that's not ecclesiology. Ecclesiology means we understand the doctrine of the church. We're aggressive about the doctrine of the church. In our context, we understand membership. We understand our relationship with each other. We understand our relationship to the Lord through the church, that we're serious about church. We understand that we're all ecclesiologists, that we understand what makes our church our church. You've heard, heard this if you've been through our, our membership class. We're Baptistic. That's different than saying Baptist, even though Al Mohler was here and said we're Mission Road Baptist Church. So in his mind, we kind of made the cut. Um, <laughs> Baptistic. What does that mean? We baptize believers, not babies. That's what baptistic means. Also, we're dispensationalistic. It's a big word, which means that we believe there's a difference between Israel and the church, that God will restore national Israel one day, and he will take the church in a literal rapture, and there will be those that, well, I'll get into the whole chart if I'm not careful. There's a difference between Israel and the church. That's what makes us dispensationalistic. We're Cessationistic. 
which means we believe that the, um, there were miraculous gifts that attended the apostles in that first generation that were there to verify the supernatural um, uh, character and nature of the gospel that are no, not needed any longer now that we have a Bible. Tongues, prophecy, uh, words of knowledge. And we'll get into that, by the way, when we get into Romans 12. Uh, we're also Calvinistic, which is different than Calvinist. All that means is we believe that man is dead in his trespasses and sins, and unless God awakens the heart, no man will ever get saved. Does that mean that we're Calvinazis and we, we're hyper-Calvinists? We don't pray for people's salvation. We don't evangelize. Not at all. And we will get to that in just a few weeks at the end of Romans 8. And we also believe uh, that, that the church should be led by elders. Not ruled by elders, led by elders. And how does an elder lead? Jesus says in Mark 10, 45, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to offer his life as a ransom. So, uh, our leadership wants to serve our body for the good of spiritual growth. That's why we exist. So we understand what our church is about. We, we, our, our ecclesiology is not just, well, we go to church anywhere. We go to church somewhere and we're committed to a body and a local body of believers. Number nine. I won't get into this too much. We'll come back to this. Rationalistic epistemology, what I mean is that we believe, we see with eyes of faith, not sight. We believe in the supernatural. If you don't believe in the supernatural, you've probably decided to come to the wrong church. We believe, you know what our next passage is in, um, in Romans uh, uh, 8, verse 14? It says, those who are led by the Spirit. Do you believe in the leading of the Holy Spirit? Supernatural, do you believe he's here? Do you believe that God did and can perform supernatural works and miracles? Do you believe in a heaven and hell? Do you believe this world is not the only thing there is in reality? A rationalistic epistemology, that's, that's the study of being, epistemology, means that if you can't explain it scientifically, then it's not real. We have eyes of faith, not just eyes of sight. And we believe them, even stronger than we do the ones of sight. And number 10, and this is where I just wanna to talk to you for a minute before we break, <clears throat> pragmatic methodology. That's another reason. These are all negative, right? This is another reason that we need to go back to the beginnings. It's pragmatic, pragmatic methodology. In other words, you do what makes sense pragmatically and practically rather than what makes sense biblically. And remember this, what makes sense biblically is always counterintuitive, counterinstinctive. God's ways are not our ways. So we're going to be studying in this FOF class, why do we do what we do? Why do we do what we do? Do we have answers for that? Can, not only the pastors and elders, can you answer that? If I ask you this, why do we have Sunday school? Some churches don't. Why do we? Why do we have a worship service? Why do we have an evening worship service? Why have we gone to the every other week uh, care groups? What, what's the meaning, what, what's the reasoning behind that? Is our methodology, which is what we do in church, is that attached to our theological understanding? And I can assure you from sitting with some very godly men who are your elders for hours and hours and days and retreats and, and coffees and lunches over and over and over, these men are aggressive at wanting to make sure that our methodology is biblical, not just practical. Now, here's the footnote. 
it's okay that it's practical. But the practice, the praxis, the practical comes because it's biblical. We don't make it where we think it would work, then try to sanctify that to make it biblical. Which means we have to have a biblical philosophy of ministry. We must avoid two extremes. Boy, we gotta watch this. Traditionalism and entrepreneurialism. You understand what I mean by that in the church? Traditionalism is, oh, we can't change. We have always done it like that. And whoever decided to do it like that must have been around Paul because that's why we do it and we ain't changing. It's, being, it's just traditionalists are just terrified of anything that's changed. On the other side, you got the entrepreneur who thinks everything has to change. You have these, this new generation of young evangelicals, some of them even reform guys who are trying to redefine the church almost on a generational uh, uh, statistic. They have to keep re- redoing everything. That's why we want to study church history, men. Those of you who come on Wednesday mornings, we're going to go into church history. These guys have already tried all this stuff. Let's look at how doctrine and praxis was worked out by godlier men than us and not commit their mistakes and certainly build on their successes. Just understand that change is always a part of ministry. One thing I've loved about being a part of Mission Road is that uh, change is always hard, but we haven't had a lot of heartburn over the changes that we've tried to do. I think because you, I hope, because you trust the leadership that whether it's this changes on Sunday night or changes when we had to do Wednesday night, that these are all a part of trying to do things better and more biblical. Um, we don't want to change just to change things. I, I'm, I'm not into that. We've got to watch being traditionalists or entrepreneurialists. We don't have to reinvent the church. So these are 10 reasons we have to go back, or at least there's five of them. There's 10 reasons that we have to go back and say, why do we do what we do? And if, if you hear me or Bob or Adam or Aaron, any of the elders, constantly going back to this and, and, and saying, haven't we already covered that? I understand, yes, we have. And we're terrified that we'll get away from that mooring. So we're gonna constantly be going back. So in the coming weeks in, in, a, in a, a adult fellowship, in this, in our Sunday school, we're gonna go back to the beginnings. I think it's gonna be encouraging to you to go back and say, yeah, amen, I believe that. For some, it'll go, wow, I didn't understand that. Uh, next two weeks, we're gonna be looking at scripture. What is, what is this book? I mean, it's, it's a little bit unfair to, when a person's a new Christian to say, here you go, go get them, tiger. This has different genres. It's written from different perspectives. It has a lot of different um, uh, uh, ways that you understand and apply. You don't understand and apply historical narrative in the same way that you do epistolary. You say, what do you mean by that? Okay, how do you apply this? Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Does that need a lot of explanation? No. How do you apply this? Elisha went over to the river in 2 Kings 6, I think. And in there, he, he, there were some guys working on some, some dormitories for the, for the priests, for saying to be a prophet, rather. And a guy borrows an ax head, flies off, goes in the water, muddy water, Jordan River, and he goes over and with a stick, waves it over, and the ax head floats. 
So how do you apply that? You see what I mean by understanding? Application is approached differently in different genres of the Bible. Um, In precatory Psalms, do I not hate those who hate you? Jesus said, love your enemies. How do you work that out? All I'm saying is there are, there, it takes hard, good spade work hermeneutically to get at what we need to from the Bible. And that's what we're gonna study. Um, we're gonna study hermeneutics. We're gonna study the person of Christ, person of the Holy Spirit, uh, nature of the church, um, how we got our Bible, what the Bible's made up of. And I hope it's gonna be encouraging. So that's what fundamentals of the faith is about. I finished with five minutes to go. Any four minutes to go? Any questions about what we're going to do? What we're going to study? How it's going to look? I'm going to do this first section. Um, I, there's a couple that I'm going to miss that some of our elders and pastors are going to pick up for me. But let me encourage you: make Sunday school a priority in the next few months. Make it a priority always, but make make it a priority in the next few months to go back to the beginning. Let's let's realign our beliefs.